Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Smith. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us to uh, say together uh, the Lord's Prayer, but I want to ask that as we pray, you call to mind, in addition to your own um, intentions, the Christians in the Holy Land who really... Um, deeply need our prayers this holiday season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. And St. Pope John Paul the Great, pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is uh, Dr. Steve Smith, and just call me Steve. I teach at um, Mount St. Mary's Seminary, one of the oldest uh, esteemed houses of formation. We train seminarians from across the United States. So Deacon uh, Sabatino asked me if I'd be interested in talking a little bit tonight about the major Jewish groups that were active at the time of Jesus. And I wanted to write back and say, are you nuts? Are you kidding me? I mean, this is one of my favorite topics, literally. Um, it's also one that should interest all of us as we move towards Advent, because what we're really trying to do is not just understand some ins and outs of the, of the Essenes or the Pharisees. What we're really trying to do, of course, is to prepare for our Lord Jesus Christ. And as part of that preparation, we need to know that something about the world that he walked into. And so tonight, I do want to introduce you to uh, he asked me to do three. I'm actually going to try to up the ante and do seven. But we'll, some of these will be pretty brief snapshots, I assure you. But what if before we got into uh, the groups that are on your handout, what if I told you that I could explain a lot about all of these groups, not just the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes, but the others I want to mention. What if I told you I can explain much of them from just two small passages in the Old Testament? Would you believe me? Would you at least be game to say, prove it or show me? <laughs> All right, good. So open your Bible with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Samuel. Both passages are going to be in the books of Samuel, the first one from 2 Samuel. And this first passage, I think, will be familiar to a lot of you. A lot of you have taken my, um, not my, but the symposium course I was privileged to teach last year. We went through the Old Testament. You've had a lot of teaching here. So I don't think this one will really surprise you that much. This is, of course, the Davidic Covenant, uh, that God brings to David through the prophet Nathan. So this is the first passage. We'll read it, and I want to go on to another passage, and I'll explain why I think these two passages will help us a lot tonight. So here's the first one, 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in uh, verse 12. The Lord's covenant with David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, uh, before we move to the next passage, just as a, a refresher for those of you who are familiar with this passage, or for the few who maybe don't, aren't familiar with it, this is a very, very key passage. In fact, arguably one of the most important passages, believe it or not, in the entire Old Testament because it gives us the climax of all the covenants of the Old Testament from Abraham right up through David. We have Abraham and then Moses and then David. Each one of those is an expansion on the original covenant with Abraham. But this is the last resting place in the Old Testament where we see the covenant reach its fruition. So two things quickly about this passage. Notice in the verse that we just read in verse 13, that the Lord promises to David a son, come forth from his own body, right? And that's not just Solomon, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a divine promise that has perpetuity, right? After him, another son. After him, another son. After him. That's what's meant by everlasting in the Old Testament sense. 
But two things are promised here in, the, in one word. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the uh, throne of his kingdom forever. The word house, in Hebrew, bieth, say it with me, please, bieth, um, has at least several connotations. One connotation is a dwelling place, and specifically here, the dwelling place is the temple, the house of the Lord. The other connotation that's related to it is a bit different, and that is a dynasty. House as in the house of David, meaning the lineage of David. Okay, so when you read this passage, you have to see in mind both of those dimensions of house. In any case, this, as I said, is one of the key passages in the Old Testament where we see the covenant reaches fruition. But when this was given, right, in the time of David in approximately 1000 BC, things were really going well, very strong, a united kingdom. Um, but it was not long after David and Solomon when we know things broke apart in two, went very, very badly. Assyria came in, the major empire, and wiped out the northern ten tribes. They become known as the Lost Tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah survives for a couple hundred years, but then it gets attacked and annihilated, really, by the Babylonians, who not only capture Jerusalem, but also destroy the Baeth, the house of the Lord. And the reason this is important to contemplate as we move into uh, studying these groups is the promises that God made to David were meant to be, in the minds of all who received it, something that lasted forever. But what happens when history intervenes? What happens when a pagan empire comes and destroys the Baeth, the house of God? What did that do, do you suppose, to the mindset of Jews, say, throughout the centuries, but especially in Jesus' day? Well, we're going to explore that. So that's the one passage I want to leave as sort of the introduction here. Now let's turn to one more. For this one, we have to go to 1 Samuel. And this passage is probably a little bit more obscure, but it's very, very important for our purposes as well. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to look at um, verse 35. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. And we have a prophecy here. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 says this, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart, and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. There is that pattern again, that term, bieth. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Okay, now how does this help or prepare us for understanding what was going on with all these groups in Jesus' days? We first talked about 2 Samuel and how the collapse of the temple was a cataclysmic event which caused a lot of uncertainty and questioning and really ultimately led in part to a lot of these various groups. What about this passage? This is about a faithful priest. Well, the priest here who's in mind has a name and that name is, I'll introduce to you, is Zadok. Can you say it with me, please? With a Z, Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. And I want to give you a quick run through on Zadok and who he was for those of you who aren't familiar with him. Um, first, let's turn to, um, let's see, a lot of places to go here. Um, let's look at uh, 2 Samuel 15, uh, verse 24 to 29. 2 Samuel 15, 24 to 29. I'll tell you a little bit about who this, this priest is. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And beginning in verse 24, let me read it and then I'll explain. It says, And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they sat down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back into the city in peace with your two sons. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes for you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and remained there. Okay, a little context. Um, Zadok was one of David's loyal priests, in fact, one of his high priests, 
very preeminent in David's uh, lifetime and in David's kingdom. But in this passage, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, uh, things had gone very, very badly, and David had lost the throne to his son Absalom. Remember, later in that battle, he says, holds him in his arms, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. But at this point, David's on the run from Absalom, and it is uh, Zadok and this other high priest, Abiathar, uh, who carry the Ark of God back to Jerusalem and are part of that restoration of uh, David to the monarchy. If you flip over to chapter 20, just a few chapters later, he shows up in yet another passage in chapter 20, verse 25, where it mentions that Zadok and Abiathar were priests when the restoration of David to the throne had occurred. So at least in a couple of places here, we see how Zadok is that premier priest, God's uh, uh, sort of anointed priest, as it were, in the time of David, the great king, right? Uh, now, I want to ask you to turn to uh, another passage, this one in 1 Kings. Just go over a few more pages and you'll get there. Uh, chapter 1. Now, yet another instance in David's life is when his son Adonijah uh, had tried to grab the throne. Uh, and Unfortunately, the one priest, Abiathar, made the poor decision to side with Abiathar. Zadok did not fall for that scheme. He did not participate in it, and he sided with Solomon, who we know, of course, gets the throne. So it again shows prudential judgment. But let me just show you the passage in 1 Kings chapter 1, um, verse, I believe it's verse 8. But Zadok the priest and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet uh, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. In other words, they avoided that corruption. They avoided that. They remained pure. And then one final passage, and that is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32. So Solomon becomes king. And this is a very interesting passage here. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 to 40. Uh, says this, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehadiah. And they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of the Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. Did you know that the son of David rode a mule to Jerusalem when he was anointed king? Just let that soak in for a minute, okay? All right, then... Um, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come up and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Solomon, that is. And Benaniah, the son of Jehadiah, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with the Lord, my king, even so he will be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. And so Zadok anoints him and so on, and we're off and running into the Solomonic kingship. Now, uh, the two passages, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 2, where we saw that prophecy about a faithful coming priest. That priest, as I described, is none other than Zadok. Now, here's where these two come together and help us as we move towards our topic tonight. Um, after the temple was destroyed and later rebuilt, I've already mentioned this, but there was a kind of a questioning, a kind of a confusion among many Jews as to whether God was going to again visit his people, whether he was going to bless them and return and be with them. They say, well, wasn't he with them all along? Well, he was with them, but it's really hard to put into words just how cataclysmic the destruction of the temple was. I tell my seminarians that if you can imagine a sort of, uh, you know, um, ancient 9-11. You're heading in the right direction, right? But it's almost as if that temple represented, uh, you know, uh, the Twin Towers uh, and the White House and, heaven forbid, the Vatican all rolled up into one building because it was not only the center of religion and sacrifice, but it was also the cultural and economic center of the entire, uh, of all of Judea. That's what happened was when the temple was destroyed. And then the other theological question is, well, why would God allow that, especially a pagan people? It's not like an earthquake or something accidental happened, but even that should be beyond the realm of happening to God's house. But this was not some natural disaster. This was a pagan empire that came in and destroyed it, took the king in chains, 
and, and fetters and took him off to Babylon and many of the Judeans. How could that happen? And what the prophets uh, rightly saw was that it could not happen unless God allowed it. Right? And so what the prophets eventually developed for us was this a theology of divine judgment upon Israel for being uh, disobedient. Okay? And so now Israel has to live with that. We're God's disobedient people. He did this to us to chastise us so that we would return to him. He only removed himself because we have already removed ourselves from his hesed, from his love. And so this leads us to the 4th century B.C., 3rd century B.C., 2nd century, and so on, until we, now we come to the time of Jesus. Okay. With all that being said, these two ideas begin to, in many ways, afflict the many people throughout uh, Jerusalem and beyond. This idea of the collapsed and rebuilt temple, and also this idea of the priesthood that had been corrupted. You say, well, wait a minute, I know about the temple, but what about this corrupted priesthood? Well, that goes back to Zadok. You see, Zadok and his sons were on the throne from the time of David all the way to 171 B.C. Count them, right? Over, well over 800 years, nearly a millennium, it was one Zadokite priest after another after another. In other words, um, the priesthood was kept within this one Levitical family of Zadok. And this was a very treasured uh, idea and ideal in Judaism. Of course, he was a Levite. Um, Zadok himself was uh, the son, um, one of the sons of Eleazar, who was, of course, the son of Aaron himself. So he had great genes, right? But it was not only that, it was the idea that for century after century, the priesthood was entrusted to this most holy family that was, uh, whose roots go all the way back to the throne of David himself. Um, now, what happened in 171? Anybody know? Or thereabouts? What was going on in 171 B.C.? I, th I thought I heard a couple of people maybe say it, but we're, we're almost at the time of the Maccabeans, right? In the Maccabean period, right? Okay, so um, setting the details of that aside, what happens in 171 is Antiochus Epiphanes, I know it's a lot of history here, but stay with me, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the Hellenistic... Um, emperor at the time who oversees Palestine, employs and elects his own high priest. And for the first time in over 800 years, almost a millennium, he selected a non-Zadokite, one who was a Levite, who was qualified, right, son of Aaron, all that, but he was a non-Zadokite. This was a major outrage to everyone in Jerusalem. How could God allow this to happen? It was only second to the destruction of the temple. First you've taken our temple, now you've taken our royal line of Zadok away from us. And guess what? It got even worse with Herod the Great. When Herod the Great came into power, he put into place whoever he chose as high priest. Some were not even Levites, according to Josephus and others. Did you hear that? Some were not even Levites. That is an abomination before, you know, the, the, the ancient rabbis. That was just unheard of. And so what we're left with at the time of Jesus, right, and this will get us into our groups here, is um, a major source of pain, suffering, confusion, despair, that God would let these things happen to his holy temple. When we talk about the corruption of the temple, let's be clear, the temple itself was not corrupt. It was really the priesthood, right? The, the temple is only animated by priests and Levites. And what was going on in Jesus' day, and everyone knew it, was that the high priesthood, and therefore the priesthood as a whole, was corrupted. In fact, some were vying for Herod's attention, donations, money, changing hands, bribery, all sorts of things like this, in order to get that seat of power of the high priesthood. It became a kind of a political football. Um, no longer was it the, uh, the premier spot for the holiest family or holiest anointed group of people in Israel. Now it was simply a political appointment. What did that do to the situation in the temple as, as everyone knew it? It's like driving into Washington. You could say this, the town sinks to high heaven. Sorry, Washingtonians, but you know what I mean, right? And there was that same sense that people had about the temple and about the priesthood. Okay. With all of that in mind, we can now step in and talk about these groups. And what I want to do is I talk about some of their 
particulars is I want to keep going back to these two ideas of the uh, destroyed temple and the corrupted priesthood and how each group responded to those, uh, those needs. They responded in different ways. The reason I wanted to spend those 15 or so minutes doing this is when you understand what I just explained to you, you will understand, I think, why the Pharisees did what they did, why the Essenes became what they became, and so on. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so flip the page if you would. You have a little nice uh, diagram, by the way, of uh, Jerusalem on page one. But let's talk about the first major group, the group everybody knows, right? The Pharisees. You know, whenever you see them in a movie, it's always like the ominous music comes on, dum-dum-dum-dum, right? Uh, I want to defend the Pharisees just a little tiny bit. I do. I, I'm actually serious. Uh, these were rigorously holy people as a group. Now, when we meet them in the Old Testament, we have that ratcheted up rhetoric between you know, Jesus and the Pharisees and later in the book of Acts and so on. There is no doubt that where they disagree, whoo, boy, it gets pretty, uh, pretty hot under the collar, right? But that being said, of all the groups that I can think of, this group may have the most in common with Jesus, or at least they're in the running for it. Let me explain. Okay, so parashim in Hebrew means separated ones, which is probably how they uh, defined or understood themselves as separated in, in a sense of abstaining from unholiness. Okay, so think about what we said about the temple and the priesthood. How do you think they conceived then of what needed to happen in the temple and with the priesthood? Well, double down on holiness, double down on becoming clean in the eyes of God. And that's exactly what they did. Let's read on a little bit. The Pharisees were a group of influential Jews active in Palestine from about the 2nd century BC through the 1st century AD. They were essentially a populist movement and attracted a large number of adherents. Uh, their major competitors are the Sadducees, but as I'll explain, that was a much, much smaller group of people. A lot of people followed the Pharisees and sort of tagged along. You couldn't really tag along with the Sadducees. They were an elite aristocratic group, um, kind of a closed circle. But the Pharisees were a populist party, and they attracted many. Um, the Pharisees were known as rabbis or teachers, and we have some very famous ones. For example, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? Gamaliel, who is Paul's own teacher, and of course, St. Paul himself, who describes himself as zealous in Galatians and as a Pharisee of the Pharisees elsewhere. So they call for strict observance of the Sabbath rest, purity rituals, tithing, food restrictions, and all these other kinds of things. They adhered strictly to the Torah, but this is very important. They basically developed oral traditions as a way of preserving or keeping the law. And this, this is where Jesus runs headlong into conflict with them. It wasn't their love of the law. He shared that but where they developed oral traditions that were not of God, that were their own, which became oppressive. It was those traditions which were, in a sense, mad main that he critiqued. He was not critiquing tradition, sort of capital T, right? He certainly wasn't critiquing the law and their adherence to that, but it was their oral traditions around putting a fence around the law, right? Um, and he saw that as uh, too much uh, hypocrisy and too much uh, rule-keeping that, that God never intended. But again, the reason they did so was this collapse of the Zedekite priesthood and also what, the confusion in the temple that, that it led to it, right? And so basically they said, okay, if God's going to return, our answer is double down everyone on holiness. And so they took essentially the ritual laws that priests were uh, expected to keep and they imposed them on every man, woman, and child. Now, surprisingly, you might think that that would turn people off, but it wasn't a turnoff. It was a kind of a theological turn on. Many people followed them and thought, this is the way to go. There was something about their idea that you could do something, right? You could involve yourself in more ritual purity than ever before, through hand washing and so on and so forth. And in doing those things, if all of Israel did it enough and long enough, God will be pleased, and he will revisit us again, and he will bless us. And, you know, it, it becomes a kind of a hamster on a, thing, on a trail, though, right? If he's not back, maybe we're just not doing enough. And so they continue to double down harder and harder and harder. By the time you get to the first century, it's kind of like running full steam, and that's where Jesus runs into them, okay? Does that make sense? That's kind of the background. Um, 
But I did say he shares a lot in common. One of the things that Jesus shared in common with the Pharisees uh, was that they did not only hold to the five books of Moses. As I'm going to explain, other groups had uh, a, a smaller canon than the Pharisees. Pharisees had essentially 22 books of the Old Testament. They, they basically number them differently. So First uh, and Second Samuel, that's one book and so on. But uh, basically held to the, uh, to the law and to the prophets. Okay, as did Jesus. As did Jesus. Jesus would always say, you ever heard it read in the law and the prophets and in the Psalms? Jesus says, well, that's because Jesus embraced this fuller canon. So did the Pharisees. Not so with other groups. So the Pharisees had a, a lively sense of tradition. In fact, they had too lively a sense of tradition. It became part of the problem. But in that core belief that God did not stop speaking to Israel after Deuteronomy was closed, but had continued to lead and guide them, they were right. right? Because certainly God was speaking through prophets like Jeremiah and Daniel and through the Psalms. And they embraced that, and Jesus embraced that. And because of that, they, like Jesus, um, in a, in, on a human level here we're talking for a moment, were able to accept and embrace ideas that weren't found solely in the law. The big one, of course, is resurrection. The idea anastasis in Greek, the Greek Old Testament, anastasis, resurrection, is found in uh, various books like Maccabees. It's hinted at for sure in Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. It's the idea of immortal life comes in in the Book of Wisdom. Well, guess what? If you're a Sadducee and you cut off Revelation at Deuteronomy, then you don't really accept those ideas. Uh, so we'll talk more about the Sadducees. In fact, I'm moving quickly into them, so let's just go there. Um, the second group, the Sadducees. Siddiquim, uh, Siddiquim in uh, Hebrew, uh, or in Greek, Siddiq, uh, uh, the righteous ones which may refer to how, again, they wish to conceive of themselves and their identity. Now, some say, and it's probably the case, at least in theory, that they may also derive their name from Zadok. If you think about it, even without some Hebrew, you can see how Siddiquim and Zadok are kind of close, even etymologically, right, even as they sound. Um, of course, he was the high priest I talked about under King David a few moments ago. Now, so who were they? Well, um, the four Gospels portrays them, often together with the Pharisees, as opponents of Jesus. In John, it is often phrased as hoi iodioi, or the Jews, but in reality, the ideology of the group was quite separate from the Pharisees. They're lumped together, right, sometimes, but they're really very, very different. In contrast to the Pharisees, the Sadducees uh, were really rivaling for power and control of the masses in Jerusalem, and they had a very distinct theology especially important in their theological understanding is that they strictly kept to the Torah. And by the Torah, again, I mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That and that alone was God's holy word, period. Uh, which is why sometimes I describe the Sadducees as kind of the religious fundamentalists of their day. It's interesting, there are some kind of comparisons between groups today and groups then, but it gets a little bit dicey, so we're not going to go there. Um, but they did not accept developing notions in other parts of Scripture, uh, in other parts of the Old Testament, as the Pharisees did. So, life after death, you see on the top of page 3, mentioned in Wisdom of Solomon, uh, in, um, also in Maccabees, right? They didn't accept these teachings. Uh, believe it or not, they actually rejected the reality of angels and spirits and demons and so on. Despite, strangely, the predominance of angelic activity going on in the Pentateuch. Now, why would they do that? Well, again, they had a kind of very fervent, laser-like focus on God and God alone in his revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai and those five books. They didn't kind of like the idea of intermediaries. They didn't like the idea or accept the idea of uh, life beyond the grave, which was now beginning to take hold in, uh, in Judea and Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. So I say it's fair to describe them in some sense as fundamentalists, yet they were not uneducated. This was a group of scholarly and not ill-educated, uh, prominent and wealthy families. Okay? So that's a little bit on the Sadducees. And um, Okay, now let's talk about another group here. And by the way, on this side, to give you a little excursus on what the Jewish groups believed about resurrection. I already alluded to it, but in case you want to look at some quotes, I give you a couple of quotes from Josephus himself on what the Pharisees believed 
and what the um, Sadducees believed for their part. You can look at that uh, on your own if you like. But let's talk about the third major group that we uh, want to cover tonight for sure, and that's the Essenes. This is one of the most enigmatic groups. Um, those of you who have been to the Holy Land, did you raise a hand if you visited or stopped by the uh, Qumran site? Okay, oh, some of you have, some of you haven't. I've been privileged to go there a number of times. I'll be leading our uh, uh, seminarians there for a whole day to visit the caves and to take the tour um, and to learn more about them, help the seminarians learn about them. But let me try to give you a, an overview of who they were and why they were important. Definition, it seems an eschatologically driven sect that lived a separatist communal lifestyle at a place that's known as Kirbet Qumran, which is in the Judean desert. It's near the Dead Sea. Um, very active from about the second century BC through 70 AD. Okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls, which we know were discovered only in this last century, 1947, were uh, composed and compiled by them. But I think it's really more the non-biblical documents that they wrote that are so fascinating. Because, yes, it's, it's, as a biblical scholar, I love to read their translations and so on for different reasons, but it's their own um, documents that are the most fascinating to me, talking about um, the temple scroll, the copper scroll, and above all, the, what's called the community rule of the Essenes. And when you read these documents, for example, the so-called community rule, what you're doing is you're peering into this kind of uh, very curious and odd sectarian group of Jews who removed themselves from Jerusalem, from power, from the temple, waiting and expecting a day of cataclysmic judgment. So, going back to Zadok and the temple, let's just back up and summarize. Why did the Pharisees do what they did? Well, pretty simple, right? They believed that God had judged Israel, and in order for him to be pleased in return and restore his blessings to Israel, double down on holiness, okay? Uh, the Sadducees that we talked about were of a different sort. What they did is they doubled down on Scripture, but only certain parts of Scripture, the, um, the Torah, and they also held to power very much in the temple. The Essenes had a different answer altogether, right? If, uh, if Dodge is corrupt, get out of Dodge, and that's exactly what they did. They left entirely Jerusalem. They believed things had stunk pardon the expression, to high heaven so badly that there was no hope in the present generation for anyone to even have sacrifices be pleasing to God there. That's how sick and toxic the fumes were in Jerusalem. So they moved their camp out to the Judean desert. Um, their leader was known as the teacher of righteousness. Um, early on, when the scrolls were discovered, some had posited that that was some sort of code word for John the Baptist or Jesus. I hate to disappoint you, but no, it's neither one. Uh, the teacher of righteousness was there, probably a, a de facto high priest or someone close to that, right? Someone who led them away, who was probably very charismatic and rigorously faithful uh, to the precepts of the law and the temple, but who recognized or felt that God was going to have to first judge and then restore, right? where the Pharisees believed if everyone just kind of got busy, right, get on the hamster trail, it'll happen kind of as we go. Not with them. It's going to be a day of judgment, you know, red skies, black, you know, helicopters, all that crazy stuff, right? Uh, so what they did is they essentially hunkered down in the desert and were expecting an apocalyptic day of judgment when the sons of darkness, as they referred to them, would come and make war on the sons of light, of course, they were the sons of light in this narrative, right? And um, when that would happen, God would send either one or possibly two, get this, two messiahs, and those warrior figures would visit the Essenes, be pleased by their holiness, and lead them into Jerusalem through the Golden Gate, through the East Gate, and make war on these apostate Jews, much like the Levites did after the golden calf incident, and basically bring about a cosmic, a renewal of the whole cosmos. So they didn't just see it as like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go back in there, we're going to make things better. They actually saw it as like, almost like Noah, like there's going to be a whole new creation. They used vivid apocalyptic language of a day of violence, a day of fire, a day of judgment that was coming, and then after it, a whole new creation when they and their teacher of righteousness would take the helm of the temple and God would usher in a whole new age. Okay? Um, 
I always tell my seminarians, if you think life is rough at uh, seminary in the United States, you should vi visit the, uh, the seminary at Qumran, because they were kind of a proto-monastic community, but boy, if you messed up, you were out quickly. You read that in the community rule, and th the reason for that is not too hard to fathom once you get their mindset. They were almost deliriously paranoid about corruption and so disaffected, right, that they moved out of Jerusalem to make a kind of symbolic statement that we can't have anything to do with what's going on there at all or will become unclean. So if someone didn't say the prayers right or, you know, something loose talk, something like that, maybe this is a deceiver in our midst. Maybe he's going to try to infiltrate or that was the kind of thinking. And so it was like you're either inside or you're outside. So it seems very harsh. But underneath it was a theology that was trying to secure and preserve holiness for this day of judgment. Uh, now, when were they um, destroyed? It was actually in 70 AD. The Romans not only destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, but they destroyed this um, proto-monastic um, community. And I always say, you know, when they saw the Romans coming, I wonder if they thought, this is it. This is, these are the sons of darkness coming for us. In any case, they... Um, they fearlessly fought and died. They were not really an army, although they had some warriors. Uh, but they did leave us their scrolls up in the caves above their community, which, of course, we've discovered, thankfully, and learned so much about Judaism, so much about, um, about the New Testament. To be clear, none of the New Testament documents are in those Dead Sea Scrolls, not a one. Every one of the books of the Old Testament was copied some many more times than one. Um, and every book except Esther, that is, as parts of Sirach and other books. And um, it's led some to ask the question, well, what about John the Baptist? Maybe you've heard this. Was John the Baptist any scene? Um, I have thought about this day and night for the better part of 10 years and read and studied everything I can. And the answer is, I don't know. I really don't know. So I can't lie to you and say I know something here. I don't. I do want to urge caution in this regard because I think some people, especially early when the scrolls were discovered and out in the public and the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, you heard that talk. And now people are beginning to kind of hit the brakes and say, yeah, maybe not so fast. Maybe he was more of a competitor, John the Baptist, than a, someone who spent time with him. If you went to uh, Qumran, those of you who went, there's a little movie where they kind of fictitiously portray John the Baptist there. And you know, John talks and he's like, I was with them for two years. I'm like, no, don't say that. You know? But there, there's a sense in which they do share some um, commonality. So let's talk a little bit more about the theology of the Essenes and for that matter, John the Baptist. What do they have in common? What do we know about John? Give me, give me some of John's theology. What was really big for John? Repent. repent, right? And that was very much a part of there. They had a very repentant mindset. Anything else? Baptism, Baptism ritual purity. So it's the, that kind of a symbolic or ritual purity. They're a very ascetic lifestyle. Um, they also have in common just their locale. I mean, we, we can't say that because John was in the Judean desert or beyond the Jordan that he was there, but certainly John going out to the desert is, well, let's just talk about John for a minute. What is he doing when he's out there, right? He's baptizing, right? Um, he's, he's getting ready, uh, making people ready for the Messiah. But the kind of baptism and symbolic things that he's doing and talking about sin and forgiveness of sins with the coming Messiah where is sin forgiven in ancient Judaism? It's one place, the temple. So John going out to the desert is kind of making a symbolic statement. Say, let's talk about forgiveness of sin out here, right? Is in some sense saying it ain't happening so much in Jerusalem these days. You can go there if you like, but I'm going to offer and talk about a real forgiveness, right? And the one who follows me, I'm not even fit to untie his, his shoelaces, right? That's John's theology. Now, the Essenes, we're not sure how much contact they may have had with the early Christians. It's a bit of a puzzle. Uh, but one thing we know for certain, Jesus was not an Essene. How do we know that, right? Because he didn't fulfill the wishes, and he, he, didn't, he didn't go down their road, right, which was sort of a dead end, right? He engaged people. They didn't. They retreated. He didn't. He engaged even his enemies, right, whether it was Pharisees or Sadducees or whomever, Right? He offered healing and miracles to all who had need, right? but he also engaged even his adversaries, where their answer was, nope, we've got to wait until God intervenes, and then it's going to be a cataclysmic day of judgment. That was their basic solution. Okay? So you can see how, again, this corruption of the priesthood and the woes about the temple led these groups to go off in very distinct directions, and I hope you can see that better now, just by thinking about 
each of these groups in light of how they, how they provided their solution, right? Pharisee solution, you know, Sadducee solution, Essene solution. Pharisee solution, double down on holiness. Sadducee solution, double down on scripture, but only parts of it. Essene's uh, solution, get out of Dodge completely, wait for Mashiach to come, okay? Um, now, that's the main three groups I want to cover, but let me mention a couple of other because there were certainly other options. One of them was what Josephus called the fourth philosophy. If you consider the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, the three major philosophies or way of living and being Jewish in the first century, then the fourth philosophy, as he called it, was zealotry. A term zealot um, is actually more complex than it first appears. I know that everyone says, well, it's, they were all gathered together, united like guerrilla warfare to defeat Rome. Well, in a sense. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a bit more complex. There was a lot of infighting. There were different power grabs. They had different intentions. They had different coups and different leaders. They were not a united front for the most part. But broadly speaking, they were revolutionary-minded groups who desired political and violent action and overthrow of uh, Roman oppression. Uh, the zealotry movements of Jesus' day were probably not organized, or at least not at first. They eventually became organized, and by 66 to 70 AD, it had coalesced among a fighting force that took on Rome, uh, the Romans, and of course, lost, famously, right? Um, it's possible, but and not at all unlikely, that some misunderstood Jesus to be a zealot. And in fact, some, and we know one of his disciples, Simon the Zealot, may have even he may have appealed uh, to Simon because Simon perceived something of a zealot in Jesus, but of course Jesus was not. Okay, so what was, how do we compare the zealots to these other groups and the temple and the priesthood? Well, it's hard to say, but they're really less motivated by the theological and more by the political, although that is almost doublespeak, almost, because to talk about the theological and the political in Jesus' day is almost impossible. They're all kind of merged together, right? You can't talk about religion and politics and separate them much in Jesus' day. But as much as it was possible, they were interested in the political solution. They were interested in overthrow, in violence, of removing the, um, the oppressors of Rome and all that it brought, taxation and all sorts of uh, incursions on their political uh, liberties, uh, to get them off their backs. So you would hear zealots talk about restoring the kingdom of David, but what they meant by it was something very, very different than what the Essenes said or what Jesus meant about it, right? So it's very possible that there were some um, who were disillusioned and, you know, followed Jesus no longer. For example, in John's Gospel, right, when it says um, in the Bread of Life discourse, many followed him no longer. I just wonder, was it you know, not to diminish the hardness of the Eucharistic saying, and that's very, very hard, right? That would just send a lot of people packing. But I wonder, too, if a lot of people begin to peel off from um, the movement of Jesus because he was just not fitting into their particular vision, right? Um, so that's something just to consider and think about. Um, the next group is uh, really a very, very small group in some ways. It's the high priest, the chief priests, uh, as well as the priests and Levites. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to really present some of what's on here. You can take a look at it on your own. I just want to acknowledge that group as these are the power brokers. These are the powers that be. And I have a little illustration. Uh, sorry for folks that are uh, online or at home. But we have a little illustration of the Sanhedrin. just wanted to mention that. The Sanhedrin was the group of the ruling authorities in the temple. They were sort of like the Supreme Court of the temple. Some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees, some were from other elite groups. But essentially, the Sanhedrin was 70 uh, uh, figures who, who basically were ruled over by the high priest. And so what they essentially did is govern what was going on in the temple. And these are the, this is the group, the high priests specifically, that Jesus encounters and gets into those one-on-ones those -on with, as we know, in the Passion narratives. Um, but the priestly garments... The priestly garments that you can see and read through and the details of uh, what the high priesthood was meant to represent. And let me give you a, um, a summary of what the high priest was meant to represent. Very simple word, God. The high priest was meant to be an image or an icon of God himself. In fact, in his, uh, his, the book of Exodus, chapter 28, I won't make you turn there, but chapter 28, verse 36 and following, we have the description of Aaron's garments, the first high priest. 
And one of the things that he wore was a golden uh, a turban, right? And uh, placed upon his head, and on the turban, it actually said, Holy to the Lord. As if when he walked out of the temple on the Day of Atonement, the Great High Feast, you no longer saw Aaron. What you saw was an image of God himself. Again, the high priesthood at its, at its best was always a kind of a, uh, a model and a paradigm of holiness, right? Of servant leadership, of one who took on the sins of Israel when he laid his hands upon the goat on the Day of Atonement and prayed over that goat so that the sins of all in Israel and his own sins would be forgiven. He was a model of holiness and goodness and virtue at his best, right? And certainly there were probably you know, good, uh, good high priests and not so good high priests, just like in our own papacy, a different example, right? But um, at its best, that's what it was. But at its worst, as we saw, it became very, very corrupted. Um, interesting, too, about the turban. Open your Bible, if you would, just for a moment to Revelation uh, chapter 22. This may be a little common about the um, corruption of the priesthood. I don't know, but I just laid out there as a possibility. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, when it talks about the new heavens and new earth, this beautiful, fascinating scene, right, of the heavenly Jerusalem, we read this. The saints, verse 4, will see his face. Something that even the high priest, right, did not ever get to do. Even when he entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, right, he had to conceal his face, right? He had the incense, which made sure that even by mistake he didn't see the holiness of God, right? But the saints of God, St. John writes, will, will, even unlike the high priest of the Old Testament, see God's face. And then get this, and his name, where is it? Will be on their foreheads. Does John have a vision of what the new priesthood looks like? At the consummation of history, right? We have our, our priests, right? Um, ordained priests. But I think John senses in some way in the future vision of heaven, the priesthood of the believers with a, with a small p, right? In which we will all see God as he is, even as St. Paul says elsewhere in, in Corinthians. So even in Revelation, there's something to be said about how... Uh, there's a lingering hope uh, for to see God's priest return in glory, right? Except in Revelation, right, that priest is the lamb that was slain. And those little priests around him are the saints who've been martyred. So what happens at the end of the Old Testament, I think, is a new look at the priesthood. It's not the solution to the Pharisees. It's not the solution to the Essenes or the Sadducees or anyone else, right? It's the solution of the apostles, right? And the way you get there in the book of Revelation, by the way, is martyrdom, right? Or at the very least, an uncompromising faith, right? And then we will all be, in a sense, little high priests, right? Okay, um, lastly, oh, uh, I should say two more. The scribes, just want to mention them. Um, they're often mentioned with the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees. The term probably is more properly, scribes of the Pharisees, not scribes and Pharisees, although you see both, right? Many were probably a subset of the Pharisees, as in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, it is actually in the Greek, the scribes of the Pharisees. So who were they? They were men specially trained, uh, influential as interpreters and teachers of law. It's not simply that they were, you know, writing the law, that's the part of it. But the bigger role was interpretive. They were interpreters of the law, and so therefore they would have fit very well in uh, that Pharisaical group that believed that you needed to kind of extrapolate and to, uh, and to lead on into deeper understanding of God's word. Um, lastly, and this one's interesting, we'll close with this one, is a group you probably haven't heard of. They're called Am Ha'eretz, which simply means the people of the land. And guess what? Probably, when I asked you earlier, which group would... Would you be in? Would I be in? Probably this group. See, the Pharisees, for all they attracted, were still, relatively speaking, small movement, relatively speaking, right? Certainly the Sadducees were. The Essenes numbered mostly only those out in the desert, right? Scribes and so on. Relatively small groups, minorities overall. But the Amha Eretz could fill an entire mountainside. They were the poor. They were the underprivileged. They were the shepherds. They were the artisans and workers. They were the farmers who had lost their individual farms and had to work on 
uh, co-ops and paid heavy taxes and dutifully did so, but went to temple, went to the synagogue. Um, the poor, the unknown, the faceless, the ones that Jesus encountered. And uh, Monica, how are we doing on time? How many minutes do we have? Five minutes. Okay. What I want to do very quickly is talk about what were Jews in general expecting at the time of Jesus. We talked about this differences. Now quickly, let me point out what I think are five things most Jews are waiting for. And just so I get these in, I'll give them to you, then I'll go back and, and describe. Number one, they were waiting God's Messiah to unite all of Israel. They were waiting God's Messiah who will unite all of Israel. Number two, they were waiting a Messiah who would restore the temple and the priesthood. Number three, they were expecting a day of forgiveness. Zechariah talks about a day of forgiveness when the Messiah comes. Number four, that God's Messiah will defeat Israel's enemies. That God's Messiah would defeat Israel's enemies. And number five, and last but not least, that God's Messiah would gather all the nations to the one true living God. Unite all of Israel, restore the temple and its priesthood, forgive the sins of Israel in a fresh way, defeat Israel's enemies, and gather all the nations beyond Israel to the one true living God. And I can talk about, after the break, about more about each of those or any of those, if you like, just ask me. But um, what I want to suggest is that those themes permeate the prophets. And that's the world that Jesus steps into. He's not going into any group. He's going out to the Amha Eretz, to all the people. And certainly what he's mindful of uh, is the revelation of God that we see, especially in the prophets. Let me give you just one, okay, just to give you a taste of this. Um, number three, God's Messiah will forgive their sins in a single day. Listen to what Zechariah says. 400 years before the time of Christ, he writes this. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, Joshua the high priest. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. In Hebrew, Natsir. For behold, upon the stone which I have set before the high priest, upon a single stone with seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and here it comes, and I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor under his vine and his fig tree, two other messianic images. Mind-blowing, you stop and think about it. Zechariah envisions when Mashiach will come, there will be an outpouring of forgiveness in a single day. He doesn't have to say the words Good Friday, but I think underneath this mystery is something that points to the passion of our Lord. Elsewhere in the book, in chapter 13, Zechariah says, On that day, there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So I just want to mention that because sometimes people say, oh, all the Jews were only waiting for a kind of warrior uh, prince. And that's true to some measure, but as you've seen, it's complicated. But among the prophets, they had, I think, a pure, more theological understanding than all these groups combined. I'm talking about Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and all the rest of the 12 minor prophets. When we read the prophets, what we begin to see is the vision that God set forth. Not that the Pharisees set forth, not that these other groups set forth, but that God set forth. And so it's no surprise, should be no surprise to us, that when Jesus enters into Galilee and Jerusalem, what he's interested in doing is proclaiming the kingdom of God as the word of God teaches. He's not trying to satisfy itching ears of the Pharisees or Sadducees. So sometimes he happens to say something that they like. But other times he says things that they don't like. Let me leave you with one very quickly. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll close with this little passage here. It's a great one. Luke chapter 4. This take us about three minutes here, so bear with me. Luke chapter 4, let me set the stage. The beginning of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth. You all know the passage. He goes in, opens the scroll, reads from Isaiah. Got to get there myself. Here we go. And after he reads it, right, we know the passage. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what he has just read is one of those messianic visions from Isaiah 61 and 62. Read it through, and you will see Jesus in every sentence. I guarantee it. You just will see Jesus Messiah in every sentence of Isaiah 61 and 62. The year of Jubilee, uh, release of, uh, uh, from captivity for the prisoners, and so on and so forth. All the way through. Read it through. Okay, here's what happens next. 
Luke 4.22. They spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He doesn't fall for it. What does he say to them? Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do now in your hometown as well. He understood that there was confusion about what God's Messiah would really do. They were looking for a cheap magic trick, for a miracle. He was offering something more. Now they turn on him. Watch what happens. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the heavens were shut for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon and to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, what did they say? My, this is Joseph's son. No. What did they say? All in the synagogue were filled with rage. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went away. What happened? Their vision of Mashiach, whatever these Nazareans envisioned, was certainly not what Jesus took from the prophets, right? What he took was that the Messiah is going to come for Israel, but also for all the people. And why did he quote those two passages from Elijah and Elisha? Why? Because there were hard hearts in Israel, and the prophet said, the Spirit of God's going to send us elsewhere, right? To Syria and to Sidon. When God starts moving beyond Israel, watch out. It means things are really bad. God's not really happy right now, right? But the Spirit moves elsewhere. And guess what? That's what Jesus did as well. He encountered the Samaritan woman, right, at the well. He encountered the Gerasim demoniac who was in uh, Gentile territory. Jesus offered his hand to all in Israel, but he didn't leave it there. Now, if the people in, uh, of, that were following him accepted the words of the prophets, they would have understood these things. But those who didn't tend to push him away, even to the point of pushing him off a cliff. So as we wrap up, a lot of information tonight, but the big picture, I think, is to contemplate as we move closer and closer to Christmas Day, as we move through Advent, to contemplate just who our Lord is as Messiah. Do we hold the keys of what that image is? Do we have our own perceptions? Do we seek to control that in some way? Secretly, do we? That he must do this or fit into that picture? Let us let the Messiah be the Messiah this Advent season. Let him surprise you. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Saints Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you very much, Dr. Were Annas and Caiaphas Levites? Do we know? That's a good question. Were Annas and uh, Caiaphas, uh, who was his um, son-in-law, thank you, uh, uh, Levites? Um, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but as I said earlier, what, what we certainly know is that the high priesthood was sort of upside down in Jesus' day, such that no one really trusted any of the high priests, whether they were uh, Levites or not, because of the appointments that Herod was making. Uh, you also have to remember something else, and that is that the last Davidic king, his name is Zedekiah, uh, reigned during the time of the Babylonian captivity in 587 when he was taken in chains, I mentioned that earlier, off to Babylon. That was the last Davidic king. There was no uh, Davidic king that had actually led to some of those Messianic prophecies of the, of the coming son of David. But what that meant for the high priesthood, especially when you get into those tumultuous years, was it, it, that figure really became, in many ways, um, the, the centrifuge of power. And the Romans knew this. In fact, the Romans made um, the high priest um, get his vestments from a, uh, a cabinet that they had the key for. It was, I think, their way of just thumbing the nose at the Jews and saying, don't get any big ideas. 
right? Uh, we appoint you, right? One way or another, you're here under our governance, right? And um, so anyways, there's that. And, and I think um, you can see as you read through the Gospels how, uh, how much disdain there is for the, the high priest, whoever they were, right, during the time of Jesus. As, I would say almost as much as the Romans, in some sense more, because they were meant to be the shepherds and guardians of Israel. Um, if you look at the book of Revelation, which I mentioned earlier, um, um, in the letters that John writes to the churches, at one point he talks about a community and talks about the synagogue of Satan that was present there. It's actually John's words. Those are not really, you know, flattery words. But you get the impression, again, how the synagogue system, like the temple system overall, had been overrun by people who should not really have had that power and were abusing it, particularly, though, in the temple. And I think that's one of the big takeaways tonight, is that Jesus was not taking his cues from any of these groups. So again, sometimes he would say things that would attract them and entice them, but often confuse them. You know, when Jesus went on the Mount of Beatitudes and, and talked about, um, you know, talked about um, you know, forgiving one's enemies, I'm not so sure how that message went over, quite frankly. Um, were some who were expecting Mashiach to be something of a warrior prince, uh, a new son of David like that, uh, I don't know how well that message went down. Hey, what about the Romans? What about our oppressors? What are you going to do about them? Which is why I think in, in so many ways you see how Jesus was such a divisive figure, attracting so many who were open, right? I think of the, Sim, the Simeon character in the, um, in the presentation since a great example of the faithful Israelites of the Old Testament, right? This priestly figure who says, now I can go to my death because I've held Mashiach in my arms. And I like to tell my seminarians, boy, what a surprise Simeon got on Easter Saturday, when the Catechism tells us the dead Christ went down, right, in, to preach to the spirits in prison, and would that he met Simeon, and what what would have Simeon thought of him then when he saw the resurrected Christ uh, in in his spirit coming to preach the good news to even to the dead? But the message, of course, of Jesus was always one of invitation. Someone could always come to him, whether they were a a Sadducee as Joseph of Arimathea was, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, St. Paul, who was himself a Pharisee, uh, Simon the Zealot, who was probably from one of these zealot groups. So um, you have having the disciples, right? A tax collector, right, on one hand, and the Simon the Zealot. Boy, if that's uh, an indication of what the church can hold, right, in its diversity, it doesn't get much more than that. Two polar opposites. Uh, maybe we have a time for one or two more questions. While Monica's moving around, I do want to mention, two my own announcements. One, I did want to ask for your prayers. So if you have any sort of cards, I already have one in my pocket here, which I'll be taking with me to Jerusalem. Leave it over on the table if you would, just whatever intentions you'd like. And then also I brought some Christmas stocking stuffers with me. And uh, these are, uh, as a lot of you know, my own biblical teaching CDs. I think a copy of my book over there as well. And I try to offer the best prices I can to uh, ICC patrons. And so um, if you want a stocking stuffer, they're really great for Protestants. Some people have told me they hand them out to Protestant friends and they say, wow, that's some pretty cool Catholic biblical stuff you guys are talking about there. So hopefully we can have got one on the resurrection and some other series to take a look. And uh, if I can help you, I'll be glad to. But let's get another question. Um, I have a question about this map of Jerusalem that you have in your handout. Specifically, uh, there is a most counterintuitive aspect to it, and that is in the lower right-hand corner, there is the Essene Quarter. Uh, I was wondering why exiles would have themselves a district of the city. Yeah, very good question. Um, okay, there is in Jerusalem a gate that has been discovered that has been called the Essene Gate. Now, it may be possible, and I emphasize may be possible, that some Essenes lived in Jerusalem, and I'll tell you why or how that theory goes. But it's also possible that this doesn't add up to much. It's like saying the Damascus Gate doesn't mean Damascus is right outside. It just means it's on the way there, right? And so the Essene Gate could have been well known as the way out to the desert where those Essenes live. But if we take it for granted that there were some Essenes in Jerusalem, here is the theory. The Essenes were a group of celibate priests. Now, these celibate priests did not know when Mashiach was going to come, only that he was going to come. And there is some research today that shows there was a small group of Essenes that lived in this district, 
near Mount Zion today in Jerusalem, who had more of, you would say, a married Essene lifestyle, that they were sympathetic to the cause, that they um, had kind of, you would say, hatred in their hearts for the corruption in the temple. They didn't support it, right? Didn't give the temple tax and all that. But they had families and they had children. And the theory goes that the Essenes may have used some of those loyal families of the Essenes uh, to, from which to draw their novitiates, to come from Jerusalem. Once they would go out to the desert, then they were there for three years, lived a proto-monastic lifestyle. But that's about as best as I can answer it. One, one theologian has made a theory that the man who they're supposed to find, the disciples for the Passover, who's carrying the, you know, the, the jug of water in his head, was an Essene. And he says so because, well, uh, you know, a woman would have carried um, the water, and so a man carrying the water well, must have been a priest, therefore he was in a scene. And that's a bit of a leap for me. I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily very, very sound. But the point is, people are trying to put this together and ask, were the Essenes there, and were they somehow connected to the group out in the desert? But it's, it's again, a bit of a question mark, as the Essenes are sort of overall. Jesus was a, a rabbi. Into which of these groups was he ordained? Well, he, you know, first of all, when you say, uh, and I just want to clarify, good question, but even the priests of the Old Testament were not ordained. Uh, if you were a Levite, you were going to be a priest. It was only a question of, well, I should say you were going to serve in the temple. All Levites served in the temple as Levitical uh, men who were sort of, uh, oh, like deacons today. They didn't perform sacrifices, but they were temple police. They cared for the temple. But those who were descended of Aaron were expected to be priests. And by the way, it was not full-time service. It was two weeks out of the year. Um, in other words, the priests in Jesus' day were not ordained. It was not a calling like we have today, right, where you're called to the priesthood. If you were a Levite, a son of a Levite, you were expected to serve um, as, a, as a priest. Um, the number of priests in Jesus' day, we're told, is about 45,000, uh, with another maybe 50,000 Levitical men. So about 100,000 all said and done. But not all of them served at one time. They served in companies, okay, and so of 24. And so it's very likely that there was a rotation and they served for several weeks out of the year. Um, for example, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was a priest who was on duty, on call, when uh, that fateful moment happened, when the angel Gabriel met him. Sorry, I'm losing my voice here. But so that's the priesthood. Now, the groups were also not... Um, Ordained. I mean, the Pharisees were a lady group. The Sadducees were largely a priestly group. But they had their own affinities, and they had their own loyalists who followed them. But Jesus, of course, was not a Levite, so he certainly was not a priest in that sense. He certainly was not a Pharisee, although people called him rabbi, and he was close to the Pharisees in some sense. He also had some affinities with the Essenes. I mean, they loved the ritual purity and radical discipleship and communal love, and so did he. But he had a different definition of what all that meant. Um, so you can see that there are bits and pieces of all these different groups that would have resonated with Jesus' message. At the same time, many would have run like wildfire at some of the things he said because they just couldn't swallow all of it. There were parts that they could accept, but not certainly all of it. God bless you and bring me your prayers, and I will bring them to Jerusalem. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.